The White House recently established a new interagency council. It's called COFA, Council on Federal Financial Assistance. It will consist of grant-making agencies with the aim of making financial assistance more accountable and equitable. For more, we turn to the Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget, Deidre Harrison. Ms. Harrison, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's nice to see you. And this council is modeled after councils that have been going on almost since time immemorial, fair to say? Absolutely. I actually have the privilege of chairing two of those councils, the CFO Council and the Federal Real Property Council. And my first question concerns the announcement said grant-making agencies, and that covers a lot of territory and financial assistance. By that, you're not referring to, say, grants that go to scientific research at colleges and universities, but maybe like the block grants for the different benefits programs that go to the states? So we're actually going to cover all of it. Where we're going to start is to make sure that we're bringing together all agencies that provide federal financial assistance and are sharing best practices with each other. So ultimately, this council will include all sorts of federal financial assistance. So both of your examples that you mentioned. Because virtually every agency provides financial assistance in some form. That's right. And to that end, our council will include an individual that's been identified by the deputy secretary for each of the 24 CFO Act agencies. So all of those large department and agencies that you all probably talk about a lot, as well as a representative from the small agency council to make sure that we're getting good coverage across the federal government. Yes, because you also have the large components of the big departments that make big grant dollars also, like HHS has NIH, for example. That's right. And an important part of this council is to make sure that agencies are internally busting their silos. So today, sometimes inside those agencies, across those components, they don't have as much consistency as we would like. And so this council will make sure that the representative for each agency can represent all of the components, as well as speak on behalf of the agency and then come together and share across agencies that more coordinated messaging. And grant-making is a highly regulated function, and each agency has criteria for the grants it will make. So what's the issue here? What is it you're trying to solve? Sure. It's even more complicated than that, actually. It's not just each agency, but each program has its own underlying statutory authority. That being said, for entirely too long, we've been focused on all of the differences across programs rather than trying to identify where we have similarities. So what this council will do is make sure that we are working together to identify opportunities to reduce burden on applicants and recipients. We are improving our program effectiveness by ensuring efficient delivery, and we are sharing best practices across the board. So we're not going to just continue to focus on those differences, but instead identify where, in fact, we can and should be learning from each other. So, for example, if one agency has a really good streamlined process of having people apply and receive grants, maybe that could be replicated at places where there's 1,700 pages of forms. That's exactly right. So, for example, today, Health and Human Services, HHS, does a lot of grant making, and they have been very actively working on improving their NOFOs, their notice of funding opportunities. We want to make sure that those lessons are learned across the board one time, not make each agency or each component of an agency learn those lessons again. We want to have a forum by which to share, and that's what this council will provide for us. I mean, the issue then is not really identifying great practices. People can show those, but it's getting the other people to say, yeah, I'll try that, because every agency can justify its bureaucratic ways for some reason or another. Sure, absolutely. But it's also making sure that agencies are aware because 
For example, when things are moving very quickly, you may not know that there is a better way to do things. And this council will make sure that you are hearing what others are working on. So right now, I'm actually in the process of meeting one-on-one -on -one with each of the agency representatives and asking them, what is it that your agency does particularly well that you think you should be sharing with the other agencies that they might not know? And it's been great to hear myself, and I can't wait to bring together the whole group and have them share with each other those really important lessons or important ways that each agency is working to improve their grant-making processes. We're speaking with Deidre Harrison. She's Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget and also chairing this new Council on Federal Financial Assistance. And are there any things you can think of right now that have come to light that you might say, golly, we could all try that? Sure. So there's a lot of them. One of the areas I'm most excited about is your listeners may have heard that last week ONB issued proposed changes to our uniform grants guidance. It's basically the common denominator for all the administrative requirements for grants across the board. Well, we've rewritten it and we've proposed a large number of changes that in the coming months we hope to make final. I will tell you in the past, the government hasn't done as good of a job coordinating on implementing those changes in a way that recipients really felt that all at the same time, all in the same way. So in all of these meetings I'm having with folks, they can't wait to roll up their sleeves and get to the ground running on how to implement these changes in a unified and consistent way so that recipients at the same time in the same way can be applying to programs more consistently and effectively. Is there any sense of how many entities might be eligible or trying to apply for more than one grant program? In other words, if I'm a labor agency or a employment agency at the state, and I'm going to apply for unemployment. I mean, they get grants for unemployment expenditure every year. That's one thing. But I'm probably not going to try to get a scientific study to look at, you know, the arachnids in my region and how to eradicate them. How much commonality is there across the different programs? And at what point does the program requirement diverge from the operation of grants mechanism? Sure. It's a great question and one that we are studying and hope to learn more about. So today, if you're a recipient of federal funding above a certain threshold, right now it's $750,000 in our proposed changes, it'll be a million dollars. If you're a large recipient, you have to undergo what's called a single audit. So that is one way where we can identify these recipients that have funding streams from multiple agencies or multiple programs. What we need to do is a better job at identifying the full universe. But there are thousands of these recipients out there, but some of it really comes down to how do you define a recipient? So for example, the state may have lots and lots of funding coming in, but it's their Department of Health or their Department of Transportation. Is that really the same recipient? In some states, maybe. In other states, definitely not. And so really understanding those things is one of the areas where this council will be very effective at bringing together the right folks to have those conversations and make sure that we are treating recipients similarly when they are similarly situated and not when they shouldn't be. Yes, because at the state level, you might have multiple departments within a state right. and they all have a stovepiped system. And some systems are really secure. They have really good anti-fraud mechanisms. Others might just be kind of a spigot of money that they don't know where it goes. Sure. And that is why we need to create that common denominator across all programs. It shouldn't be the case that our requirements, whether they be reporting requirements or security requirements, are all that fundamentally different. You may need to go above and beyond, but you should be making sure that all of your programs have the same base set of requirements. And that's what this council is going to help to make sure we're doing. Again, not just across agencies, 
but also inside agencies across their own programs. Sure. And will part of the council's work be making sure that anti-fraud programs, I mean, I, I keep thinking of what happened during the pandemic relief and, you know, charitably, 30 percent of it went to fraud, waste and abuse. We don't really know the extent yet. And that can't keep happening, even with new programs or existing programs. So is part of the rulemaking that you described and part of the council's work ensuring just accountability of money that the government has not been so great on all the time? Absolutely. While we do not yet know what the extent of the fraud, waste and abuse was during the pandemic, I think everyone can agree that it was absolutely too much. And we are doing a lot, and this council will help us to do even more. Probably the most important uh, new initiative we've undertaken on the fraud, waste, and abuse part, what has become known as joint review meetings, where effectively we bring together the program staff with their agency IG, with me and my team at OMB, with the White House team, before the program starts to issue funding to really talk about what's working and not working, where are the possibilities for fraud, what are the reporting requirements and making sure that we are sharing those lessons before those programs are being administered. I have no doubt that the CAFA are going to help us to do even more of that with the existing programs. On some sense, with all of these new programs, it's been easy to identify who to get ahead of. However, we also need to make sure we're identifying the programs across the board that need to have a little bit more of a reevaluation. And that's what this council will help us to do. And how does the council itself meet? Will you have physical in-person meetings? And it sounds like it would be an all-day affair to be able to really hash things out. Sure. So uh, we have not yet had our first meeting. Uh, agencies had until uh, a few weeks ago to identify their senior accountable officials, which they all have done. We are in the process right now of setting up our first conversation, hopefully for later this month. I do hope that it will be entirely or very much primarily in person. And that first couple of sessions that we have will be to really establish the framework to make sure that we can continue to deliver on all of the success that individually we know we want to have this council to have. And by the way, the senior accountable officials, do they tend to be the CFO type of channels or program people in general? It's a great question, and I will tell you it varies by agency, and it's one of the things that we are working on with our agency partners, because the critical piece is that the individual is senior enough that they are able to talk on behalf of their agency, but they're also in the financial assistance space, so they know enough about grants management that when we get in the room and have those conversations, we can be really problem-solving. And so I will tell you, it is a mixed bag. I have both procurement, CFO, and program folks, all that are joining and can't wait to hit the ground running. Deidre Harrison is Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the Council on Federal Financial Assistance, CAFA, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. 
In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. 
Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.